Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you. Drantz are, of course, also covering the team for the athletic Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drantz are still on the road following the Canucks. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. And, of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drancer, Drancer. Canucks, they beat Ottawa 6-4. That was a a statement game, right? A real response to what the president had to say about their team earlier this week. That's what happened, right? uh, It was a good third period. I mean, it was a game where you could legitimately take whatever outcome you wanted. You know, like, whatever outcome you want to argue today, you're free to argue. That game gave you grounds. If you want to say it was this big response win, and they came together in the third and are now on the right track with the points in four or five, fair, fair. There's evidence to do that. Objective, well-grounded evidence to back that argument. If you want to say, man, you look at that first 40 minutes, and boy, oh boy, even against this Ottawa Senators team, this team does not look capable of defending well enough to win sustainably, you have grounds to do that too, right? This was this was a win for the Canucks, yes, but it was also a win for maximum chaos in the Vancouver market. Nothing got solved, but the Canucks got two points and started their road trip out on the right foot. It is, uh, I was just trying to think about it, and I was thinking about this throughout the course of the game. Like, I would have loved to be able to watch that game with Jim Rutherford, right? To see his reaction, kind of track his reaction to everything we were seeing. And we had a lot of discussion yesterday on the show about, you know, okay, what was, what are the possible outcomes of Jim Rutherford giving the interview he gave on this station on Monday? And what are maybe his goals of doing it, right? And we kind of had the discussion about, you know, there's a couple. He, he wants to shake things up. Maybe it's in a positive way, and the team finds a new level of responsibility and accountability and structure, and they play a lot better, and they and they charge back up the playoff uh, picture. Or maybe it shakes things up in a negative way, and they kind of fold, they collapse, and it gives the team a little bit more license to make changes. Whether it's at the coaching staff level, uh, player personnel, whatever it is, it gives them license to, you know, as we talked about yesterday, kind of steer into being bad at least for the remainder of the season. And the funny thing is, as you're saying, you know, you can kind of take whatever you want from that game. I think more than anything is, it didn't feel like either of those happened. It felt like very much the status quo for this team, right? Like, despite the win, I don't think you can call that a statement game, given how poorly they started, given how poorly they came out of the gate. But... Yeah, you you have to come out well That's in the a thing. statement to game. Be, for, to, yeah. to, uh, for us to buy the idea that, wow, you you really were emotionally invested in that game, you can't have the first half of it look like the way it did. Now, having you said that... You can't get mauled. Yeah. They got mauled, the Ottawa Senators' top six. Mauled. So, the, <laughs> you ever hear those stories about... Um, like the Summit Series and when the the Canadian players, and this might all be apocryphal, I don't know, but like the Canadian players and the Canadian staff seeing the Soviets practice for the first time and it was like, oh my gosh, they're playing like a totally different brand of hockey than we are. We've never seen this before. Like that's what Ottawa looked like in the first half of the game. Like the amount and volume of east-west passing that they were able to pull off in the offensive zone, the ease of exiting the zone, the degree of control they had – it looked and like the space they found behind, especially the Myers Ekman Larson pair. Yeah. 
It, it, it that was, was disturbing. They looked like the Harlem Globetrotters for the first half of the game <laughs> with how much they yeah. were creating out there. So it's hard It's <laughs> hard no to finish. see that. <laughs> yes. The, the Harlem Globetrotters, but they can't hit a shot. Yeah. It's hard to see that and buy into this idea that wow, you know they really they really emotionally rallied around Bruce Boudreaux for this game. But having said that, well, look, they they played their best third period they've played in a long time. They still won. They didn't collapse. They didn't mail it in for the rest of the game after getting down uh, early and being really outplayed very very poorly. So again, it's you know it's the status quo, which is not good enough to look like true contenders. Like massive flaws on display. They're very very easy to pick out. When Jim Rutherford criticizes the team's structure, you look at that game and you can see exactly what he's talking about, especially through the first 30 minutes. But they're also enough talented enough to win games. They're talented enough to avoid being really bad. They give you just enough that if you really kind of desperately want to hold on to the theory of this team and the theory of some of its top players, you can find enough evidence to do so, right? You can find something to hold on. To. I don't think I, I don't think you can't the, the problem the that key there, Drancer was into, saying if you desperately want to, right? If well, you're desperately trying think... to avoid the hard decisions, they give you just enough to keep that alive. I don't know. Do you do you get a lot of pushback these days though when you're saying, hey, this team's not good enough? Like I used to say things like, I don't know if this is a playoff team, and people would get mad at me. And now I just don't feel like Canucks fans' hearts are really in it. In defending the quality of this group, like I think starting slow for a third straight season with no excuses this time, right? No, no Travis mm-hmm. Green to point at. Um, you know, I think that I think that changes things. Like I, I do. I think that there's a different sense around this team. I, I don't even think those eager to desperately defend it, um, defend this club, are are doing so. To be totally honest with you, it's dwindling. And, you know, there's no doubt about it, it that it's dwindling. Rapidly. I think it's over. I think it's done. Like I think they really do need to do something like reel off four or five in a row, including against some really imposing teams, before it's going to come back. You know, I, I think it's going to take something like that. It, you know, a win against Montreal. Maybe it starts a little bit. Win against Toronto, okay. You know, Vince McMahon meme, like, oh, <laughs> now now we're now we're pulling at our collar. But it's going to take something like, and then Boston. You yes. know, like it's going to take the it's going to take more shoes to fall. I think before we're even back to where we were this offseason. A, a win in Boston um, would have Vince McMahon falling backward out of his chair. There's there's no doubt about that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and, but then you got to beat Buffalo. Then you got to beat Buffalo convincingly for the laser eyes. <laughs> yes, so indeed. so we're we're you know I, I this team has a fair bit of work to do even to get to the point where those desperate for positives and to just like enjoy the entertainment product of watching the games as opposed to by the way the always reliable entertainment product of engaging in community while while dealing with your suffering (laughs) um comes back right like that's that's the side that i think it's you know it's gonna take some time And, and one thing you know i would love to see is the organization to know what they are regardless of results you know you don't need the canucks to beat the senators or the Montreal Canadiens to kind of have a good sense of what this team is at this point, right? Like we know that they're not a three, six and two team, you know, like we know that they're not worse than the Arizona Coyotes, right? I think we, we have a good sense that they're somewhere between 15th and 22nd in the league, right? And there, and there's a floor that's still, you know, outside the top bottom eight or maybe even the bottom 10 and a, and a ceiling that's like just inside the playoff picture. And that's not good enough, right? Like, that's always been the point. You know, I don't know why we need the team to lo- go on a losing streak or going a win- on a winning streak to validate, you know, that view, right? We know. We know. We knew before the season, didn't we? Well, and that's what the real, the real question is. What does Rutherford think of 
what he saw last night, right? And I would guess, based on what we've heard from Jim Rutherford consistently and specifically looking back at his commentary on the Bruce Boudreaux uh, bump last year, right, that Rutherford probably not all that impressed with the fact that they beat an Ottawa Senators no. team after getting outplayed. 6-4. I wouldn't think so. 6-4 yeah, after getting outplayed and your goalie – I mean, that's a goalie win. Well, that's the thing. And that's, that's a- one, what, what's one of the things beyond structure that Rutherford and Alvin have consistently criticized about how the team played under Boudreaux last year. It's that they desperately needed good goaltending performances to win. Well, that's what happened <laughs> last night too. So I don't think that's moving the needle for Jim Rutherford all that much, Trance. Uh, I asked Connor Garland after the game, like, what, what happened in the first half? He's like, oh, I thought we were playing a little loose. And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, like, like, that's a direct echo. I'm sure he didn't hear the commentary because yeah. Garland's not very online. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, that tells you what you need to know, right? Um, it was enough for Canucks players and Boudreaux to get an opportunity to stunt, an opportunity they took to some extent, uh, but with, you know, a fair bit of, um, like, uh, they, they were careful. But they still they right. still enjoyed it. It was still a sweet win, as Bo Horvat, you know, agreed when I put it to him. And yet, you know, we all saw the first forty minutes. And, and here, so I want to talk about one big picture concern I have coming out of that game: Myers, Ekman, Larson together. I don't think that worked particularly well in in the, over the course of that game. You know, I, I sort of look at how that line played and the way that the senators were able to exploit the canucks north south right like they were blowing the zone so aggressively and pretty consistently catching um myers and ekman larson with space behind them and so you know that line ends up finishing um like with a positive goal differential three two but i mean contrast the the quality of the saves spencer martin had to make to drive that with what um (laughs) <laughs> with what Cam Talbot allowed. <laughs> and I think that tells pretty much the full story. Like, I was really concerned with the play of that pair. And I was really concerned with the Canucks' top six, right? Like, this was a new-look top six, changed after the Nashville game. And think about, yeah, Brock Besser scores, right? He gets the deflection mm-hmm. goal. Bo Horvat scores two. But that's not a top six line now, right? That's the third line now. Um, when you think about what you saw out of the Pedersen line, Right, you saw a Mikheyev against the grain goal, uh, and you think about what you saw of the Miller line, which was not a ton of time spent in the offensive zone, and contrast it with what you saw of Kachuk and Stutzla and DeBrinket and Batherson, and the way that the top six just kind of overwhelmed Vancouver, especially for the first forty minutes. Uh, it's not flattering, right? Like I, I do. You you go look at the head-to-head numbers, and in the minutes that. Kachuk matched up directly against the Miller line. They outshot them seven to one. Ottawa got Ottawa, Ottawa outshot Vancouver seven to one, which feels a lot like what this looked like in the first five games of the year before they moved Miller back to wing. Um, you like that a Horvat Garland line was able to produce the way they did. You liked the balance, I suppose, considering the way the game played out, particularly late. But are the Canucks giving up too much at the top end if they play Myers with uh, Ekman Larson and if they play JT Miller as a center away from Bo Horvat? Um, you know, for me anyway, I, I, we don't have a large enough sample to say definitively yes. And I want to be careful to note that we could easily see that script flipped. Um, but we saw enough to that, that it remains a concern for me, something to watch should they continue to roll out the same lineup uh, the same way that they did in Ottawa on Tuesday. Well, and especially with the defense pairing that you're talking about there, right, with Myers and OEL, which was such a 
a bedrock reliable thing for them last year. And, you know, I didn't think Ethan Bear and Jack Rathbone looked particularly great together either playing last night. They so had some adventurous shifts. Yes. So you're basically down to, which makes sense given the profile of those players, right? Like I, I like the idea or at least giving them a shot to play together, but it's also not going to be all that shocking if it you do end up giving, uh, giving more back on the defensive end than you generate with those players paired together. But you're basically down now to one pairing that you have any sort of confidence in that's going to give you consistent, reliable minutes. Of course, it's Luke Shen and Quinn Hughes together. That's not enough. That's not, sustain- that's not a sustainable way to win games and try to pull yourself out uh, of the hole that you've dug yourself early in the season. You have to find a way to get, whether it's together or with different partners, whatever it is, but you have to find a way to get more out of OEL and Myers. Again, together, apart, whatever it is, those guys, it's not just their salaries. They're going to be asked to pay uh, to play big minutes for this team. And if they're playing like this, it's really going to be, uh, it's really going to be an issue for this team. At forward, I'm not as concerned because I think the talent level is just significantly higher. And I think there's also, like with defense, with the defense, I'm not, sure what the option is, right? I'm not sure what the clear, okay, this isn't working, so we're going to do this instead. Before the season, you would have said it's Hughes, Shen, OEL, Myers, right? Like, well, hey, we can always fall back on that. That's not working right now. At least with forward, I think you always have the option of loading up the top six and moving Miller back to the wing, right? So if it's not working, if if the next game looks like for that line what it did last night, you have the option of saying, you know what? We're going Horvat, Miller, Besser, uh, and then the Patterson line going into Toronto, and I think that gives you a lot of stability uh, in your top six. I, I, with with the defense, I don't know what the next move is, right? I don't know what the kind of break glass in case of emergency move is, uh, given the personnel they have on the blue line. Well, I, I, you know, I liked what Bear and OEL looked like, right? I, I just don't know if you've got the defensive calming presence to play with Myers. I mean, one thing that I kept saying about Stillman and Myers was that they're kind of they kind of profile similarly. They're guys you think of as two-way defensive guys, but really they're both kind of more offensive guys. Like they both ideally would have, you know, one of those more mobile defensive-oriented defenders with them, right? Like I like Stillman Bear as a third pair an awful lot more than I like Stillman Myers, right? Um, So, you know, how do you sort of build that out? I think that's uh, an open question. And really a tough one to solve considering Vancouver's amount of bodies that you that you ideally want to find ways to get minutes on the on the back end which is only going to get more complicated once Travis Dermott returns right they're, they're really going to be running at a surplus of defenders who you want to try and find minutes for uh, they're already we're already coming up against that like we're already mm-hmm. seeing that with Jack Rathbone uh, and it's only going to get crunchier over the course of the next week barring of course, a move to change that dynamic. Yeah, barring some sort of uh, personnel change. Uh, somebody texted in. Um, I'm just trying to find it here. But, oh, yeah, is there an unsigned text to the Dunbar Lumber text line? Is there anything to read into uh, the Sens waving Zaitsev and Sens scouts following the Canucks a little bit? And, I mean, I, I did, like, Zaitsev did not have a good game uh, yesterday. The, the Senators' defense you saw the weaknesses. I thought there were some, you know, I liked what I saw from Sanderson. I like Shabbat too, as yeah. a player. He's good. But, Hamannick, despite the goal, yes, you called the Hamannick revenge goal. Uh, Drancer, congr- <laughs> congratulations to you. Oh, and and the Canucks and the Canucks. I I like to think I called the Canucks win too. Well, here's the thing though. Okay, because I wanted to co- I wanted to, so you you know your your uh, formula is the most what is it the most illogical path to the logical result, right? Yeah. So to, the, to, an, to a logical conclusion. To a logical yeah. conclusion. 
I think in a way you got the logical conclusion right, but you were lo- wrong about what the logical path would look like. And I think in retrospect, yeah, I'm kicking myself because I should have. We should have anticipated. Canucks, the Canucks look terrible to start the game and then win, but then win, yeah. right? Like yeah. we, we really should have come up with that as the most illogical path, but, to the logical but that's what, conclusion. That's what's so brilliant about hockey. It's it's more illogical than your imagination. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know that's what's so beautiful about this game. It is like and, uh, uh, you know, in yeah. fiction or like a mystery story or something, the best twists are the one that you don't see coming, but as soon as they're revealed, they make perfect sense to you. You know what I mean? They don't feel cheap. You're just like, oh, of course, I didn't yeah. see it coming. And but hockey's it makes total that sense. every night. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was me watching this this performance last night. I was like, I really, really should have uh, should have oh, anticipated that one. Harry's a Horcrux. <laughs> oh. Of course. Yes. Of course. Yes, of course. Uh, and this text comes in. Uh, maybe the Sens will love what Tyler Myers brings to the table. And uh, look, you know, I know Elliot Friedman was uh, saying this morning on the Jeff Merrick show that Pierre Dorian is looking for help on defense. We saw the performance from Zaitsev. He gets waived. I didn't think Travis Hamanick, despite the goal, had a very strong game uh, either. So, hey, they've already they, they got the Sens to take Hamanick last year. Maybe they can do it again. With Tyler Myers, I will confess. <laughs> I will confess, Trancer, because I think I actually think the only way um, a deal sending Tyler Myers to the Ottawa Senators would work, uh, and that this is pure fantasy. But I was doing like, playing around with the cap friendly trade proposal trade machine, and the sure. the only sal- you, the Canucks would have to take a salary back to make it work. And the only one that makes any sense is, in fact, Travis Hamannick. So that that's my new uh, my new hot trade proposal is Tyler Myers or Travis Hamannick, straight up. <laughs> Oh boy. Well, I mean, unless it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. Like, unless it's a good young asset going from Vancouver to Ottawa with like Matthew Joseph coming back, right? I mean, one of the byproducts of running a team with a shoestring budget, the way the Ottawa Senators traditionally have, is you don't have a lot of bad money. No, like they have Zaitsev, they have Hamannick. You know, they don't have a lot of middle class contracts and they have no one way contracts below the line. So it's pretty hard to come up with a deal that works uh, between the two teams. So, you, you know, and you end up having to consider what they have three million in cap space. So something like Hoaglander Myers for, you know, maybe a maybe a defense defensive prospect and uh, and, um, you know, Matthew Joseph, something like that. Yeah. Anyways, Myers has a ten team no trade list, so it's probably all moot because Ottawa's it, Ottawa's got to be yeah, on there. You would think. You would certainly expect. You would think. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Look, there. we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's a pretty short train from Montreal or from Ottawa to Montreal. Uh, it was. Uh, it was the original Trudeau prime minister who got in trouble once for saying the best thing about Ottawa is the train to Montreal. I thought. I think about that every time I take that ride, which I did today, and just had time to. Sh- sneak in some Schwartzes before the radio show uh too bad Very too nice. bad that I'm here here for such a short length of time always special to cover a game at the Bell Center the Canucks are favored tonight on the road there you third go third game of the year third game of the year they've been favored on the road the other two Philadelphia and Columbus didn't end well for them so this this they have a chance to win a game as a road favorite for the first time this season and I mean, Montreal works hard, right? Like they won, they beat Detroit. Detroit's not bad, right? Detroit's a pretty interesting team this year. Beat Detroit last night in a shootout. You know, it's not a classic road back-to-back where you're facing a rested team. Both teams should be tired. The Montreal Canadiens, um, you know, honestly, they might be the better defensive side. As hard as that is to imagine with the personnel. Um, They have one dangerous line. 
and they have NHL players sort of up and down the lineup, which, which you know, gives them something of an edge. Like, it gives them something of a fine. I've been saying it for a while. I see them as absolute pretenders in the Bedard sweepstakes. They are too good. And at some point, they'll get Mike Matheson back and be better. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this one plays out tonight because this is not as easy a game as it looks on paper, much like Ottawa wasn't, right? Mm. I didn't expect that game to be easy. I don't think this one's easy either. I don't think any game is easy, frankly, for this team. But, um, you know, this is a, this is one where if the Canucks win tonight, I think they're officially on a roll. Um, and yet, it's a big ask. It's not a simple free two points here for the Canucks at the Bell Center this evening. Well, and I mean, you know... I think Montreal has, as you said, they have separated themselves from the true bottom feeders in the NHL, right? So you can, and again, for this Canucks team, you, they shouldn't be looking at any team going in and thinking it's a free uh, two-point night, but I, I especially don't think you can with Montreal. You know, I will say their defense, I think, is something that the Canucks can attack, right? If Especially if they're able to play like they did in the, uh, in the final half of the game against Ottawa and really get their forecheck going. I think the Canucks can have success against Montreal's defense. But I think the question for me, more than anything, is, you know, you didn't have the, the real fire-in-your-belly start to the Ottawa game that a lot of people would have been expecting, a lot of people would have been figuring to see after the Jim Rutherford comments. Now, you still manage to salvage it. You rally. Your goalie keeps you in it. You come back, you play really well in the third period, or well in the third period anyways, I don't want to overstate it, and you get the win. But so often with this team, and not just this year, but going back to last year and even beyond that, Drance, like there's an inability to capitalize on the positive momentum. You know, and I think that's why the Boudreaux bump felt so different. It was they actually kept it going for a sustained period of time. But even then, in the second half of last season, there were moments with, you know, winnable games at home where, hey, if you win these next two, all of a sudden your playoff chances start to become a lot more real and they didn't get it done. So you salvaged a, a poor effort, a poor effort to start the game last night. You got the two points. Can you actually make it count? Because if you come out and lose tonight, Okay, well, it's still nice that you won the Ottawa game, but you're kind of, it's one step forward, one step back. And that's been the problem with this team for a long time is an inability to actually build on the positive things they do. So that's like, I sound like a broken record, but can you find that forechecking ability, that energy that you had for the last half of the game against Ottawa and actually do it for, you know, from puck drop for the full 60 minutes against Montreal? Because if it's just another kind of, well, you played well for half the game, but really poorly for the other half of the game. I don't know if that's going to get it done. And again, I you know I opened the show by saying it felt like the status quo. It's going to feel very much like the status quo again, if that's what we see. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, the status quo is what's most likely in some ways, right? I, I mean, well, it's the status quo for a reason, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. Like it's the status quo because they've done it over and over and over again. If we think this Canucks team's true talent level is something like 85 to 90 points, like that still requires them to win more games over the balance of the season than they have to this point, right? So we'd expect them to perform better than they did at the outset, but not well enough to do the Boudreaux bump, you know, late charge, play some interesting games late in the year um, territory, right? Like that's sort of, I think, the very fattest part of the bell curve. Uh, you know, I, I keep tracking it every week now, but... Dom LeCision has the Canucks playoff odds uh, going up 15% over, over the course of the last seven days, right? They, they have won a lot of games and good for them. So they've gone from 20% to 35% in terms of their overall playoff odds, but their odds of being in fifth or sixth in the Pacific have been stagnant in part because 
LA and, and Seattle, you know, the, those teams keep on winning. The Canucks aren't like making up ground, even though they're making up ground relative to some of the other bottom uh, bottom end teams in the in the West overall. So you you get to a point where their odds to be fifth or sixth in the Pacific are, are still locked in at sixty three percent, two thirds chance of them finishing in that spot, which is the worst place to be, that absolute mushy middle. That's sort of the argument. If you're making the argument that the Canucks shouldn't be waiting on a run of results to dictate their form, that they should have enough comfort to accept their evaluation of the team as the right one, irregardless of short-term runs of form, you know, moves might be warranted to either boost or like legitimately hurt this club's chances now proactively. That might be the route if you want an extreme result of the sort that, you know, we inferred Rutherford might be going after with his public commentary about how the team plays earlier this week. I, I want to talk a little bit more about um, what potential response Jim Rutherford might have to, you know, not just the game last night, but depending on how this road trip goes, if we do see more of the status quo, what that could mean for how the team responds at the management level. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Bo Horvat, who scored twice again last night as well. Some commentary from Bruce Boudreaux. We'll hear from Bruce Boudreaux and what he had to say in Montreal today as well. Lots more on the way. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance. I'm live from the Kid Tech studio. Drancer is on the road in Montreal. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And I'm just uh, I'm just chuckling, Drance, because of the the chaos unfolding on sports Twitter right now. I have just recently seen a, a verified Adam Schefter parody account say that the Raiders have fired their coach and a, a verified LeBron James fake account say that he's officially requesting a trade. So everything's going well. Everything is going very, very well. Uh, on Twitter. That seems helpful. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that's happening. It's good. See that big blue check there and a LeBron James trade request? Great. I love it. For someone who gets a lot of information that I often have to relay on the fly right away to listeners, that's great. It's good for me. Uh, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> at, at least at least those are funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it doesn't take a big imagination to imagine someone doing something far more harmful than that. Indeed. Um, 650-650, again, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And, and you know, we, we were talking uh, just before the break about what, if anything, you know, not just the win last night, but the potential for actual, you know, getting on a roll, playing a little better, winning some games here. What, if anything, that will do to Jim Rutherford's evaluation of the team? I should throw Patrick Galvin in that, there as well, of course, the general manager and, and the direction they choose to chart for this team. And, you know, we had somebody earlier text in, I think it was Keith, the water guy saying, I'm actually like upset with the Canucks picking up points because I want that rebuild. I don't want the 15th overall pick again. And Todd, the planner texts this and he says, uh, Drance, following up on your point about the team needing to trust their assessment of the team uh, without regard to the current performance. Do you think the delay in charting a course is ownership related? Is it ownership that they are needing to convince? That's from Todd, the planner. And I will say, you know, I have been on the side of this team should pursue a different direction. This team should rebuild and, you know, not a, a full teardown tank, all that, but there should be some meaningful steps 
towards rebuilding. And I understand the frustration, the concern that, uh uh-oh, they're getting some results here. They're winning games. That's going to delay it. Management's going to buy into what they're seeing again here. But I do want to make the case that if you are on a fan who wants to see a rebuild, right, if you're on that kind of side of things, I don't know that results like last night should concern you all that much. Because as we said off the top, like, that that was more evidence for Jim Rutherford, right? And, and his critique of the team. More than anything else, it was the team playing really loose, giving up a ton of scoring chances, the goalie keeping them in it, and they, they find a way to win. I don't think that's going to all of a sudden convince Rutherford that, you know what, I was wrong. This team doesn't need significant changes. We're going to stay the course. And I think at the very least, and who knows, maybe I'm this is wishful thinking, but at the very least, if you kind of start with that principle, that results like last night are not going to all of a sudden change Jim Rutherford's mind and make him you know, fall in love with this team and the way they play, I do think that winning some games can maybe just lower the temperature a little bit, get the stop the vultures from circling around the NHL, and take off a little bit of the heat demanding kind of a big move <laughs> right now. You know what I mean? Because give, here's the thing. Give Rutherford the space to cook a bit? Yeah, because here's the thing. Even if, even if Jim Rutherford talks to ownership today and convinces them we need a rebuild, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do all of these incredible bold moves in the next two weeks, right? Like that's but, not, but also, he that's not going to happen. He doesn't, he doesn't want to rebuild anyway. Right, like sure. he wants to, he wants to, you know, get this so that certainly in a year or two, right, and and emphasis on the or two, this team is a lot better than they are today, right? That's that's the plan here. It's to, as he put it, find the smaller pieces of the puzzle, but also find the bigger pieces down the line. Uh, slowly get younger, slowly carve out the cap flexibility to make a real difference in terms of this roster. But it's not, you know, uh, zero untouchables. Um, you know, throw out the bathwater regardless of what baby's in it sort of approach. Uh, it, it, you know, what what this organization's considering probably won't be influenced by what we saw last night. But, you know, neither were was their offseason. And they still doubled down on this group. So, you know, are they dissatisfied enough with the likelihood of being a mushy middle team? I think that's an open question still. Right, I think that's a fair, logical argument to make, uh, or a fair, logical criticism to lobby. Is you know, in still believing or hoping that this group has the juice, in seeing the personnel and thinking that if they could only play with structure, they'd be mm. fine. They they're in fact still, even if they understand why the team's way, method of winning games at the moment, or certainly winning that game in Ottawa, looked unsustainable. Um, they still may be overrating the group. Uh, I think that's a fair criticism to lobby based on the public track record, based on what we you know know or suspect or uh, you know have been told about the club's overall plan and posture. And and that I think is valid grounds for concern. That that certainly at the sort of crux of my overall concern is you know I'm I'm not personally all that interested in. I'm not personally all that interested in running it back with a team whose you know ceiling for me is something like the 15th or 14th best team in the league, right? Like I I, I want to see this organization aspire to something much higher overall, uh, which is why I sort of advocate pretty drastic measures because in part I I don't even know that getting a lot of you know solid singles is enough to eliminate the lead that you've surrendered you know and you're already in the bottom of the eighth with like four outs remaining <laughs> uh you know i i want something drastic I, I certainly want everyone to have the green light and be swinging for home runs um 
I want to talk a little bit about Bo Horvat. I wrote about him yeah. last night at the Athletic. Talked to him after the game. And I was really impressed with the performance. I really liked how he meshed with Garland on a third line. Uh, you know, I think Garland slotted in that spot makes a ton of sense. I mean, immediately in your mind's eye, it's like, okay, you know, if Garland is the guy providing that, you know, super consistent effort, right? That's the best part about Connor Garland is it's absolute through the wall competitiveness every game. You know, you're getting that from him. And he's a really dynamic playmaker who drives play a bit. And so when he's on a third line, I think he can be a really big X factor for a team. But obviously this club hasn't been able to slot him there with the consistency you'd like. Besser's return sort of gives him that opportunity. I, I thought that looked really good, but Bo Horvat gets two more goals. He's up to uh, 12 in 13 games. Ridiculous. Outrageous production. Five, right? five he, multi-goal games in 13 games, Transfer. I, I know. It's unreal. Oh, I, and four of the last five. And he only <laughs> now needs... He only now needs to produce 0.4 goals per game, right? Which is a 33-goal pace over the balance to get to 40, right? He's really put himself in a good spot uh, considering everything. Um, you know, the calm that Horvat evinces is something that I think we talk about this team needing more of, and yet we never doubt that Horvat has it, right? The, the way that he's handled the myriad controversies around this club, without ever really stepping, you know, out of bounds. Like, if he makes a headline, he means to make a headline. Mm. You know, it's pretty It's pretty impressive considering the volume of times he has to talk and the subject matter that's thrown at him, right? Team loses badly. What does Bo Horvat have to say, right? Jim Rutherford goes on the radio and, and blasts the team's structure. What does Bo Horvat have to say, right? He's the guy we go to first whenever there's a reason to go to him first. And he's also got his own contract uncertainty. Uh, it's a lot. And he's handled it extraordinarily, right? Jim Rutherford even said he was proud of him. And yet, for all of that, for all that he appears to be the most consistent, reliable metronome, both in terms of temperament and performance for this team, if Horvat goes off and scores 40, 45 maybe, Right? Can you really sign another guy coming off a career year? No. On this team with <laughs> yeah. how they're set up? I really don't think you can. You know, I mean, it, the Canuxiest thing ever is to sign JT Miller coming off of a 99-point season. He's point per game, by the way, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, the JT Miller criticism has subsided. I still didn't love his game last night. I don't, I don't love him at center, but... You know, JT Miller's still got 13 points in 13 games. <laughs> I mean, he's producing. For me, Miller is clearly... He's not at the level he was last year, but he's well above the level he started the season at right now, right? Where, where I thought he yeah. legitimately started the season poor. I'm not. He's, he is at wing. He's got. I, I, yeah, he's got room for improvement looked, still, obviously, but it's it looked a lot better. like it did. It looked a lot like it did early in the year, where there just wasn't anything going on offensively for him uh, with the move back to center last night. Period. I mean, I don't. I don't see much debate about that. Yeah, I mean, last night was not one of his best games, but you're right. No, and, when, and he had, when he's been he on the that, wing, when he's been on the he wing, he had that giveaway. Better. He had that giveaway right to Debrinket in the slot. You know, I mean, what's the difference between early in the year and and last night? That goes the in. Senators. Yeah, it yeah. was saved. You know, yeah. if that goes in, you're seeing that highlight on Twitter all night, right? I mean, but that's the bounces. That's that's the margins in this game. Uh, by the way, Horvat and JT Miller have one other similarity. They're both shooting 
<laughs> Finishing rates absolutely through the roof. It's very Canucksy though that you sign JT Miller coming off of a career year and and don't sign Bo Horvat and then Bo Horvat goes out in the next year having not been the guy you bet on has the career year. Right? I mean, there's just something so classic uh, about that sort of occurrence and you know Rutherford said explicitly, you know, that that Bo Horvat's production puts them to some extent in in a driver's seat too from a seller's perspective should it go down that route he also reiterated that he'd prefer to sign him but there's no way that Horvat's price has done anything but go up as his production has exploded and as he continues to be the most reliable face-off guy in the league uh you know th that combination of traits is setting him him very up very well and making things you know surely rather complicated in the event that the Canucks want to want to extend him particularly if they hit the fat part of the bell curve in terms of their performance particularly if they're a playoff also ran or a second wildcard team. And you have to ask yourself the question, how much money can you commit long-term to a core group that, you know, hasn't done much. It's a really fascinating dynamic overall. And, and one that I think is especially interesting because of the grace and tact that Horvat, you know, customarily stick handles <laughs> in this market. Well, and I wonder if that grace intact, I mean, I don't wonder, I know, but that, you know, the NHL's paying attention to what's happening in Vancouver, right? That The Rutherford interview was massive news uh, around the league. They're seeing how Bo Horvat's handling it as well, right? And the fact that through all the noise, he's going out and not just playing really well, but answering all the questions and doing a good job. As you said, you know, not making headlines, answering it well, but without throwing additional fuel on the fire. And not that that's you know, going to massively boost his price, but it certainly is going to catch the notice of teams. And there's going to be a whole host of teams that are very, very interested uh, in pursuing Bo Horvat should he make it yeah. to unrestricted free agency status, right? And that's part of it. His character, sure. the fact that he's the captain in the Canadian market is part of it. It underlines it underlines who he is as a person in addition to what you'd be buying uh, in the player. Yeah. And so, you know, I just, I look at this and I think this is, a very tricky one. A very tricky and, one for the Canucks. And I also do sort of wonder, does his value ever get higher than it is right now? I mean, on the on the proactive side of the ledger, right? If you want to lean into a skid, I mean, there's is there a player whose value is ever going to be higher than a guy who's got 12 goals in 13 games? <laughs> nope. Not that, not that everyone's reading into it, but I mean, if you want to strike where the iron is hot and hurt this team... <laughs> There's one really easy way to do it. And we're getting lots of texts on this. Kevin, It's got to be mentioned, right? I, I mean, know. I know that's fantasy hockey, but you got to mention it. Yeah, it's just it it sounds jarring when you put it out there, but I'm sure it's crossed some people's minds. I wouldn't be surprised, right? And Kevin says, at what point do we have to sell high on Horvat? Not necessarily because I want to lose him, uh, but because he is taking the have a career year when my contract is up page uh, from JT Miller's book. This one says... Um, how do you not resign? This is Chris from Nanaimo. How do you not resign Bo Scorvat? Move Besser or Garland or any other D than Hughes to make the money work. It would be so well, and dumb. How not do you to. not how do you not resign Bo Horvat? That is a that is a very good point. But also how do you resign Bo Horvat? They're right. Right? I mean <laughs> there's, there's it's it's there's incredibly compelling arguments on both sides of that question. But it's but it's not about him. You know, it would be. If I bought that this team could be contending before Bo Horvat's 30, but because I'm fading that as a take, <laughs> uh, you know, 
like I I don't understand how this organization can spare a person of his caliber, frankly, and yet I don't understand how you can extend him given how this team is positioned. It would take major surgery beforehand, and I don't think you can complete that major sur surgery in season. Yeah. So, it, I, I mean, it's just extraordinarily uh, uh, sticky. Like, it's sticky. That's how I'd put it. It's uh, It makes me uncomfortable to even consider both possibilities because I hate them both. And I really, man, I just... I just think this is very kind of sentimental of me, but Bo Horvat, you know, a guy drafted, developed, obviously been here for his whole career, wearing the C, having the year like he's having right now. That's the guy you want to keep around. That's the guy you want to make a lifelong Canuck for a team that needs a, a spokesperson like Bo Horvat for a team that needs kind of good vibes out there as much as possible. It would have been such a win. It could be such a win if they had the space to make it really make sense to give Bo Horvat the kind of lifetime Canuck contract. There's so many compelling reasons to want to do that. Like that's that's what you hope all the time when you draft a player. When you draft a player top ten, right? You're hoping that you're in a position where he's 27, about to be a UFA, and you feel really good about giving him an eight-year extension to make him, you know, one of your franchise leaders in all of these different statistical categories. Bo Horvat has held up his end of the bargain on that. It just might be for reasons completely out of his control that might be not on the table and that's tough I think that's tough for a lot of fans I think that's probably tough for the team as well and to your point transfer unless there's this kind of you know out of nowhere unexpected windfall of cap space right that they couldn't get done in the summer that's much much more difficult to get done during the season unless something like that happens you can't you can't let him go unsigned past the trade deadline you can't risk that so no. you're going to be in a complete bind come the new year, unless well, again, and everyone's going to know how desperate you are to clear cap space if you don't do it beforehand. And so, the options are bad. The options are materially ungood. <laughs> um, one thing I found interesting too, chatting with Horvat yesterday after the game, is I was bringing up and I was listing all these things that he's dealing with, and he's like, "Yeah, it stacks up." <laughs> and I I had a laugh at that reaction, and then. You know, he noted to me that I and I never even considered that he would think this way. But of course, all professional athletes think this way, right? He noted that you know he 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 sees it as trying to prove people wrong. Ultimately, you know, he was told he wasn't fast enough, and he got fast enough. He was told he'd never be more than a third line center, and he's leading the NHL in goals right now, right? He. Feels like he's been doubted, even though, for me, I've never had any questions, right? I've always just been impressed. And yet, for him, you know, the slights are motivation, are fuel. And I, I know that he's happy that the club extended JT Miller. He'd love to continue to have JT Miller on his team. I think they get along really well. But... You know that on some level, when a team decides to go first on Miller, having played hardball with you for the course of the summer, there's an element of doubt there too. Something you want to show, hey, you know, like I'm not a worse goal scorer than that guy. I can do, I can be a leader. I can be that guy. You know, you know that. There has to be. Anyone who is remembering slights from their 2015 scouting reports is also going to, 
you know, want to prove themselves in that respect. And and I think that's part of what we're seeing here too. I think we're seeing a guy who changed his stick, experimented with new ways of finishing, is thinking really hard about his game, how to be more productive in all facets of it. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for him to be motivated. The contract year, this team, where they're at. But I'm sure too that the organization's decision-making process, the fact that he ended up, you know, if not in the back of the bus, then certainly in the middle of it, um, has to have played a role in that. Wouldn't it for you? It certainly would for me. Yes, it would. And, and I'm know. not nearly as competitive as Paul Horvath. <laughs> yeah, no, of course it does. Uh, uh, like, of course it does. And, you know, just to your point about the work he's done on his game, look, he's not going to keep up this pace. We all know that. I'm not uh, I'm not breaking any ground. The shot, the puck looks like it's exploding off his stick, though, right? And I know he's got a lot of goals from in close and rebounds and tips and stuff like that as well. Those those take talent. You know, he could have had more goals. He had a good chance on the power play last night. It's it's um, and whenever you go into goal, the chances he's getting, what, here, like he's yeah. getting. He's he's getting robbed two times a game. Whenever you go on a right? goal scoring <laughs> run like this, you're going to have an inflated save percentage, but that doesn't mean it's all luck. You know, he's also playing to earn a lot of those really high quality chances. <laughs> that will slow down, but he's also we, you can't just wave your hands and say, "Oh, well, yeah, whatever." I mean, he's just he's shooting 25%. You know, no, that's, it's that's not, not that everything. No. It's not that everything's going in. It's not it's puck luck. like it's not puck. He's luck getting right now. he's getting five glorious chances a game. It's just that he he's converting two of them. Um it's it's actually quite amazing. Uh, the, he's he's getting more chances than he ever has, it looks like to me. Maybe not five-on-five, five, but overall. And some games, five-on-five, five too. Uh, Chet, and so, yeah. Chet and yeah. Burnaby text in, and this is, a, this is a really good point. Bo Horvat is the only remaining bridge to the classy Sedin era. It's such a tough call. And I think back to uh, Kevin Bieksa's speech when they retired the Sedin's numbers at, at uh, Rogers Arena, right? And he made that point that there's this kind of bridge from – Linden to Nasland to the Sedins and this and in BX's words, right? Bo Horvat played with the Sedins and then Horvat was going to carry that culture on. Now we know we've heard over and over again questions about the culture of of this team currently. So you can say, well, that's already failed, right? Like that 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 premise has not come to fruition. But to Chet's point, if you do move on from Bo Horvat, you're kind of waving the white flag on that. You are you're severing that tie from the height of this franchise in the Sedin era that currently Bo Horvat, as Chet says, he's the only remaining guy. It's it's a really legitimately difficult, uh, extraordinarily difficult decision. That's just one of the reasons. It is. It is. There's, there's no right answer, unfortunately, because on the merits of who Horvat is alone, there's really no question. You need to keep him. But on the merits of what this team needs and where they're at, and the amount of money that they've invested already into these types of deals, they have to tread with extreme caution. Um, and that's not where you want to be. You don't want to be in a spot where because of other bad bets made, you're facing a really hard decision on Bo Horvat, right? That's never where you want to be. But that's where this organization finds itself, dealing with a 27-year-old player who's really paced them to this point in the season and is going absolutely off the nets never felt so big to him and he and it shows just absolutely pumping goals past goaltenders at the moment <laughs> he's he's put himself in a good spot he's put the team in a very tough spot but you know what that's on the team right they've put themselves in this tough spot and, and i think you have to be extraordinarily circumspect this shouldn't be a tough decision it is 
and it's because of mistakes made elsewhere, which is really unfortunate. This text comes in, and we've we've had a few texts to uh, to this point, but this one is Chris from Nanaimo, who says he's getting greedy. He says, "What would be the likelihood that they trade Bo and then reach out to re-sign him in the summer? Best of both worlds." LOL. That's from Chris. And the old, look, the old Keith Kachuk. It's a favorite, right? Of we get that suggestion a lot. We got it with Tyler Mott. You know, the thing is, it's the that still presumes that they'll find a way to solve the cap space issues, right? Like the cap space issues won't magically disappear uh, in the summer once July 1st hits. And then all of a sudden you can sign Bo Horvat to whatever you want. You still have to find a way to clear up enough space. Now it'll become easier in the summer. There's no doubt about that, but that doesn't mean it's guaranteed. And uh, look, I get it. I get why people suggest it, but there's just so many moving parts. It's so difficult to actually pull that off to, to kind of keep everyone on good enough terms to make that a reality that I it's either you're signing them or you're trading them and you're making a clean break uh, at the trade deadline with this point. We also had uh, uh, somebody else text in. Oh yeah. Well, on, on the BX point, BX also said it can't take one guy. Uh, Bo could never do it alone. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in more Canucks talk on the other side. Cam Sharon, our pal will join us to, uh, uh, talk about some of his analysis of the most recent Canucks games, what he's seeing from the team right now. We'll get him to weigh in on the the structure personnel <laughs> debate after Rutherford ignited <laughs> that again. It is Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Day after a win for the Canucks, another game day in Montreal for the team. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance here with you. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Trance on the road to Montreal. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, and, yeah, people are uh, people are fired up, absolutely fired up about the Bo Horvat discussion, uh, Drancer, which makes sense because it is – there's uh, emotion involved. It's very difficult. There's extremely compelling arguments on both sides. Uh, no surprise that – a lot of people are in the camp of do whatever you have to to keep to find a way to keep Bo Horvat. Leaf Hater Steve says get rid of Besser, even Garland, but don't lose Horvat. Uh, Johnny Max says the best way to create cap space and improve the team is to trade Tyler Myers. I understand all that. It's just really, really, really difficult to do. If there's a way to do it, then sure, you 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 do that every day of the week, but. That's the problem. When the rubber hits the road, it can be very, very difficult to do this. Uh, by the way, Chad texts in, most other teams would love these issues of not being able to afford all these guys because that means they would have a winning team. Not the Canucks, though. <laughs> That's from Chad. Uh, 650-650. Yeah, it's the painful. Over text line. <laughs> it's not a good situation. It's painful. Usually you use, you know, oh, this guy's playing so well, he's going to earn a big contract. And you use the, you know, well, it's a good problem to have line, right? It's like, man, it doesn't really feel like a good problem to have right now. No. <laughs> it does no, it not doesn't. feel like a fun problem to have uh, at the moment. Cam Sharon is going to join us momentarily here. Of course, he's doing great work tracking all of the Canucks games. 
You can read his work at camsharon.com where he does uh, post-game analysts, zone exits, zone entries, scoring chances, all of that, and more. Always look forward uh, to chatting with Cam Sharon. He joins us every week here on the show. And again, 650-650, you can keep your thoughts coming in. Marcus and Gibson says, on the bright side, the Canucks have been the most intriguing team in the NHL to start the season. But don't you need like a break from being the most interesting talked about team at a certain point? <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't like that only go takes you so far before it becomes exhausting. They're fun to watch for the drama, but they don't play a style of hockey that's fun to watch. Typically, no. Sometimes it looks you know, nice, but there's been a lot of games that have been pretty, uh, pretty ugly uh, on both sides um, this year. Because, yeah, because again, as we've talked about, when the Canucks are at their best, they're often limiting what the other team can do with control, <laughs> and they're not making up for it by do it by playing with control uh, themselves. We'll get into that no. more. You know, we got Cam on the line, so we'll uh, yeah. We'll get let's into talk that to Cam with Cam Sharon, <laughs> who does some actual work, some real work tracking uh, these games. You can read him at camsharon.com. Of course, also a contributor at the Athletic uh, and a former member of the Toronto Maple Leafs front office. Cam, thanks for doing this as always, man. How are you? Uh, well, what did I what did I miss here? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Trance and I are just I don't know. Like following this team is driving us slowly insane. I think. I, I, no, I was I was commenting to Jamie that you know the Canucks are an interesting team because of the drama that surrounds them, but I don't think they're an interesting team to watch from a pure hockey perspective. You're watching them super closely. You're watching a lot of teams super closely. What's your take? Uh. I, I didn't mind last night's game, but Saturday's was probably the worst hockey game I've ever seen. That <laughs> it was just an absolutely uh, despicable uh, just just performance by both sides. Neither team really trying to win. I, I think I agree with you. That's like it, the Canucks are kind of like a they're they're like a wrestling stable that doesn't really have any good wrestlers. They kind of have the whole sideshow thing going on, but yeah, the actual hockey itself isn't particularly interesting no it's just not fast right and I, I sort of felt yeah. that way watching the Canucks and the Senators yesterday and I, I noticed you recorded zero scoring chances uh zero scoring chance involvement from any defenseman on either team last night and you know it, it felt like a mirror image game in some respects where you know, there's a lot of talented forwards, but neither team has the infrastructure to really support them in a way that connects things over 200 feet. Yeah, and I could probably talk a little bit more about the Senators uh, just by being in the same division as them for so many years, and you kind of recognize how poorly that whole rebuild has gone, and they've basically built this core where they have a bunch of decent forwards, but really nothing to kind of back it up. I think, you know, Shabbat's obviously a pretty good piece, but I think he's a he's an offensive defenseman. He's not really a two-way guy. Still eats like, you know, 30 minutes a night or whatever it is. But, you know, they were really hoping that Jake Sanderson would be basically an all-star immediately. And I think he's been about as good as you can possibly expect. And, you know, that's that's fine for them. And Jacob Bernard-Docker looked okay. But they've had just some real problems on the back end because they they – kind of did this whole rebuild without a plan to to surround their top forwards with with anything that could really help them out. So the depth isn't good, and the defense is bad, and the team isn't winning games, and I think that's to be expected. And I think that just, that's just kind of what happens when you rebuild without a vision. And if a team's going to rebuild, they have to do it properly. And 
you know, I think the Canucks are going to have to eventually rebuild. You know, I'm I'm with you in that boat, but you, you can't look to, you know, you have to look at something other than Ottawa for the, it's not a model that works, frankly. You can't just get a whole bunch of good forwards, sign them long-term, and then hope that, that the pieces fall into place. You have to also draft and develop well, and the Senators haven't done any of that. You think that's only uh, applicable to Ottawa? <laughs> well, I, you know, it's just because I know, you know, I know Ottawa a little bit better than, uh, than probably most people in Vancouver would would bother <laughs> and, and you know i know in in your write-up of last night's game you talked a little bit about people are afraid of rebuilds because they look at the ones that don't work out like ottawa and they can see how you know two or three years can spiral into five or six or even more years of real pain but you know even you know drance and i've talked a lot about the canucks difficulties and how they're positioned going forward but you know, you made the point, and I think it's a good one, that if you do it right, if you do it with focus and, as you said, with a real with discipline and a plan in place, it doesn't necessarily have to be five or six years. You can turn around even a struggling team a lot quicker than that, typically. Yeah, and, like, it's it doesn't, you know, I, I've, I've said this before a couple times in my recaps, that rebuilds happen gradually and then all at once. And there comes to be a point when you when you have that infrastructure in place and you get that lottery pick or – that off-season signing that you inject into the lineup, and all of a sudden everything sits. Everyone's playing in the lineup where they should be. Everything is kind of working. Everyone's productive, and it just it just looks a lot better, and the atmosphere is a lot better. Um, you know, New Jersey obviously took that step. They were just kind of on the outside, getting better and better, and improving on the margins. And then all of a sudden they make two big moves in the off-season. You know, they haven't gotten Palat into the lineup really because he's been hurt, but. Uh, you know, just John Marino on defense just really stabilized that group, and all of a sudden they have a really good top four, and they don't let the other team have the puck, and it just looks great. But it, it took it took them a long time to get to that point, and I think that kind of they were doing both things. Like that, while they were kind of toiling at the bottom of the lineup, they were also building up a pretty good infrastructure. They have a pretty good uh, research department and pretty good pro scouting staff that were able to uh, to 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 help the team going forward. And also too, like they have a bunch of, of players in the farm team that haven't really gotten all that, all these minutes yet that are kind of ready to step in. Like Fabian Zetterlund's had a, had a good season so far. Uh, we're looking, you know, we're still waiting for Alexander Holtz to break in. Like it's not just one or two guys that they got that are suddenly stars. It's that they prepared and were able to surround Jack Hughes and Nico Heischer with, some pieces to, to help complement them. And, you know, that's something that Ottawa hasn't done and something that the Canucks are going to have to do because, you know, I, I'm kind of looking at this core with, you know, it's mainly Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes. And, you know, I'm sorry, but Bo Horvat's kind of aged out of this core already. I don't know if he's on this team when it's the next great Canucks team. And that's something that the organization is going to have to grapple with over the next few months. And, you know, JT Miller is already past that point where, like, I don't know how many points he has this year, but he hasn't really looked good in too many of these games. He's not been particularly particularly noticeable except on the power play. Yeah, I mean, he's still putting up his points. I think he's at a point per game. But as you said, so much of that damage is coming on the power play. You know, to Bo Horvat, he's on a goal-scoring tear. And, you know, we can talk about the inflated shooting percentage and all of that. On a more granular, granular level, what are you seeing from Bo Horvat right now at 5-on-5? Five five? Um, 
I haven't, you know, this is, uh, you're putting me on the spot here, but yeah, I'm going to have a thing on the athletic, uh, for Friday about, uh, my, you know, just an obser- my observations about the Canucks from a micro statistical standpoint. And I do want to get into Bull Horvat a little bit more, a little bit more and kind of look at what's not really working at five on five with him. And it feels like there's been a, like a variety of line mates. He's obviously out, he's playing a lot. Like he, one of the things I'm tracking as well, just for completeness is face offs and, it's easy to notice that he's out there for seemingly half the draws the team, you know, the team has. Um, so he's kind of had to, just this variety of line mates and his plays in a variety of situations. It doesn't really get too much of an opportunity to really just kind of go offensively except on the power play. And the, and the power play is great. And I think it, it looked a little off to start the season, but they've been generating a lot of really good looks the last few games. And that's, kind of where he knows his production level. He's just so good in that bumper spot. He can create so many uh, so many shooting lanes for himself. Uh, he can act as a decoy to open up passing lanes across the ice. There's one last night where J.T. Miller was able to feed, uh, you know, right across the slot line to Elias Pedersen, and they haven't really done that before. So, you know, Horvat has good offensive instincts, but, you know, who's he been playing with? He, You know, last night we had him with... Uh, with Pod Colson and Garland, you know, Pod Colson's nice, but he's not going to be driving the bus offensively for anyone. Garland can pick up a few pucks, but, you know, like I, th- I think he's also seen a lot of time with, like, uh, you know, Pearson and Miller this year, and neither of those guys have really been driving too much of the bus at five-on-five. Five. And that's – they don't really have those guys that can really do that. And Horvat's not really a, like, a, like a play driver. Pedersen's really the only guy that they have that can do that. So – if you're not, you know, whoever's not playing with Elias Pettersson is kind of, not, you know, not able to create things on their own. Like, they're going to have to create things on their own is the problem. And uh, I haven't really seen, a, like, a whole lot out of Bo Horvath. I want to look into into, what, into whether it's been effective or not. Um, that'll be for Friday. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really know what to expect. But, I, you know, he certainly has been a very good finisher. He's been very good around the net and particularly good on the power play. I love watching him there. Cam, how fortunate were the Canucks to come out of the first 40 minutes with the score level last night, in your view? Very. And I don't know. The, the, the weird thing is that a lot of people want to credit Spencer Martin. I think Martin had a really good night. But a lot of the reason why the score was tied, or whatever it was uh, in the third, I think yeah, it was tied 2-2 going in the third, uh, Ottawa was missing a ton of nets. They had an open net uh, you know, several times uh in the slot with the puck on the stick in the slot and just missed the net. And it's funny that when we talk, you know, we talk about goaltending and in, in these real like binary, did you make the save or did you allow a goal when there's so many other things that can happen? And, you know, if, if a, if an attacking player has a, has a shot in a great situation, just whiffs on a shot or, or, you know, fires it into the third row, that looks better on the goalie because it doesn't count as a goal against, but they're still out of position, you know, they're still caught out of position and, uh, and, and, you know, just fortunate to not have that goal go in. And that, that's kind of what I was seeing last night. I don't think that Martin played a bad game, but he, you know, he didn't have to be standing on his head. Ottawa kind of shot, shot himself in the foot quite a bit. <laughs> with, with, yeah, they definitely seized defeat from the jaws of victory. The Ottawa Senators did. What and, and then changed? Played by the Canucks in a, in a third third period. Well, and, <laughs> and and what happened? What did you notice happened? There's been a lot of discussion about structure versus personnel 
in dictating the Canucks. What happened that allowed them to take control of things? Because it wasn't just that they got the goals. They literally took control of the game in the third period. What changed in your view? I think what kind of happened was, like in the first two periods, they built up an advantage by just winning every single battle in the neutral zone, it felt. And, you know, that meant that when the Senators were shooting the puck out or, you know, dumping it out without control, um, they'd, they'd also be able to recover the puck just because the Canucks didn't really, they weren't really in, you know, either they weren't in position or they weren't winning the battles. And they gave up the puck a lot to the Senators who were able to fire right back in. And in the third period, that kind of stopped happening. I think the Canucks started to make the Senators pay a little bit more for those, uh, for those bad exits. And they, and they were, you know, the Sens were doing fine, controlling the puck uh, uh, out of the defensive zone all night. That wasn't a big problem for them, but it was just in those moments where, you, where you'd expect the Canucks would be able to benefit from a turnover, especially in the first two periods, they weren't able to. And then the third period, that changed. The Canucks started winning those battles. They got, uh, they got the, the, the better uh, share of the, of the actual zone entries. And that just, uh, that just adds up into getting a few more scoring chances. So yeah, they you know they were the better team of the third, uh, kind of the same kind of the same way that that stopped them from being a good team in the first two periods, where just these situations where you should be winning some battles and you should be sending some pucks the other way, they were either playing too passively or they were losing too many battles and letting Ottawa recover those pucks. Uh, and you know, not I don't know if that's just an unsustainable way of playing or any you know, and things just kind of caught up to uh, to Ottawa in that respect, but the Canucks were just able to control a little bit more of the neutral zone, looked a lot better, throwing the puck in, uh, actually actually generating a few entries with speed from the neutral zone as well. Uh, it was good to see, even though, if they, even though they weren't really be able, able to create any chances off it, uh, they were finally able to establish that forecheck and get some Get some pucks in deep. Sometimes that all, that's all it is. <laughs> that's what, you, you pour over the microstats and track it all hand by hand, and then it's yeah, pucks yeah. in deep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, well, it's a, it's a funny thing, like, I, you know, with how, how much I, I watch of this sport. And, you know, in football, how basically every play comes down to uh, the, the big guys in the offensive and defensive line going at each other, and whichever one's stronger you know, that's that's going to determine the whole mm-hmm. outcome of the play, basically. And it's kind of similar in hockey. It's which team's able to get in on the other defense, get in on the defense and force them to do bad things. And that can set the tone for the entire rest of the shift if you get a good hit in and uh, force a turnover or force a bad pass and have the other team scrambling for a while. It's it's strange, but it, it's just like, you know, I think you the, the more complicated we make this game, it's also clear just how simple it is and how repetitive it is and how the, the same themes kind of keep showing up. If you can establish that forecheck and you force turnovers and bad exits, that sets up a lot of chances for you to, 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 to create offense. In conversation with Cam Sharon here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650, and you know, just the, talking about the the forecheck and the forechecking of this team, and Brudro referenced it last night after the game, right, saying they weren't doing a good job of forechecking in the first two periods. That changed in the third period. You even go back to last season, and you know, a big part of the reason they were able to win games under Bruce Boudreau was their forechecking was very successful. It's been kind of hit or miss for the team this year. As much as they wanted to be their identity, it doesn't feel like it's been there consistently. 
Is that just something where, you know, in, in general, it's hard to sustain a really effective forecheck like that night in, night out? Is it something about the personnel of the team, maybe not having enough really talented forecheckers? What are you seeing when it comes to the Canucks forecheck so far this season? Well, well that's a good question. I think I'd compare it to the team I, I also know, which is Toronto. And Toronto's best forecheckers are, you know, Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, who are also very good offensive players in their own right. So, it can look a little inconsistent when the the Canucks' best players at recovering pucks are your Tanner Pearsons and Connor Garland's and uh, you know Neil Hoaglander, like fine players. It's good that they're getting the puck, but they can't really do too much with it once they're able to recover it. So that leads the whole thing to looking a little bit uh, hit or miss. And I should also include Dakota Joshua on there, who who was shown to be a very good forechecker as well. Now the last two games, I think they've not forced as many turnovers from the uh, from the Nashville defensive group or the or this Ottawa one last night. So, but I, I think it has been pretty good throughout throughout the season for the most part. They've they have uh, got you know they have forced the other team to turn the puck over on fifteen uh, percent or more of their defensive zone touches most games. I feel and that's a pretty good that's a pretty good number. Though you know as I'm tracking more games, I'm trying I'm learning at like what you know what the, what the good and bad. Uh, numbers are and it seems like 15 percent or more is, is a good for checking night and the connects have been able to do that a lot but yeah it's like when you're able you know what are you able to do with the puck once you get it and it, it seems like they're not really doing that as well as they probably should be i think that you know the, the petterson kuzmenko line are their their best offensive uh, line five on five and they're just better at creating off the rush and mm-hmm. uh, and through control less off sustaining a four check so what the you know i think what the connects need to do is probably uh, I think look for ways to create opportunities quickly once they recover that puck. And I think the the Studnicka goal last night was a very good indicator of, of of what you can do. As soon as they got the puck from Eric Brandstrom, all of a sudden they're taking a shot right away. They're not really giving the defense another time. They're more chance to set up. They're not sending the puck back mm. to the point or rimming it around uh, the, the boards again. You're not giving the defense opportunity to get back in back in control of of their system. You're doing it quickly you want to create chaos and forcing a turnover is a good way to quickly create chaos cam we got to ask you one more everyone in this market has been discussing structure versus personnel what is ailing this team more what is holding them back more in your view having watched this team uh, under a microscope every game they've played every entry they've made every scoring chance is it the personnel or is it the structure that has had the Canucks underachieving through 13 games? It's absolutely the personnel. Uh, I don't know if the structure is great, but I also know that this team just isn't good enough to be able to, to you know, convincingly be several games above 500 at any point in the, in the NHL season. And, you know, they might prove me wrong and keep winning games, but... You know, I think recently they've won enough games to kind of erase their bad start, and they're kind of, you know, I, I haven't done the math. We're kind of looking, you know, what are they? Like, still need to play at a 100-point pace or so to, to get to 95 points or whatever. You know, yeah. they're, they're still pretty – yeah, they're still pretty far behind, and I think that that's mainly a personnel thing. They just don't have the pieces. They don't have the horses. They don't have that offensibility. They don't have – you know, they have – they have – Basically, two forwards that look good on any that look good on any given night in Pedersen and Kuzmenko, and the rest have kind of been, you know, really hit or miss at five on five. And I don't know what kind of structure helps that. They just don't have the game breakers. They don't have enough. 
They don't have defensemen that can break the puck out with speed. It's there. There's a lot. There's a lot wrong with this. Um, even if you know, even if the structure is probably not flawless, and uh, but I, I, you know, I think I, I was very curious about basically the end game for for Jimmy Rutherford when he made that when he made those points. I don't know who he's talking to. I don't know if he actually believes it's a, it's a structure thing or a personnel thing. I don't know. I, he's he's obviously talking to, to to people other than you and me when when he's when he's doing that. So that's I'm I'm, cur- I'm going to be curious to know what exactly his he was trying to accomplish in that interview. <laughs> Uh, you, you and us and a lot of other people as well on that one, Cam. Just before we let you go, you know, you talked about not having the defenseman who can break the puck out with speed. Yeah. They've tried to at least start addressing that with the acquisition of Ethan Bear. That's somebody Rutherford mentioned that they've been pursuing for a long time. They get him in the fold. He's played four games. I know for a lot of people watching the games, a lot of fans, just he has such a different skill set than any other Canucks defenseman uh, other than Quinn Hughes, so it's really popped off the screen a little bit. What have your kind of big picture takeaways been from the first uh, few games of Ethan Bear's Canucks tenure? Uh, well, it was very obvious last night that he and uh, and Jack Rathbone, they had some long struggle. They had some sequences where they struggled. And I think that one area that, that of Bear's game that's really concerned me so far is his puck management. So I've had, uh, I've had him for 69 defensive zone puck touches and 15 of them are turnovers, which is 22%. And that's, you know, you want that number to be around 10%, really, uh, for a good defenseman. So he, you know, it's only four games, but it's been four games where he's cost the puck up quite a bit and been forced to defend a lot more. And I understand that there's a different skill set. There's a, there's kind of like that shiny new toy uh, thing. And I like Ethan Bear. I've always really liked Ethan Bear, and I thought that he deserved a lot of – I thought he he deserved a bigger shot in Edmonton than he got. And, you know, there was an unfortunate uh, – you know, he ran into issues with COVID in Carolina that kind of cost him his spot, not just as a regular, but he was playing next to Jacob Slavin before he caught COVID last year. So, you know, I don't, I don't, there's, I have nothing against the guy, but I think just in the early going, he needs to get better at managing the puck, uh, spend less time defending uh, for me to really uh, think that he's going to become a difference maker on this team. Cam, always enjoy it, man. And uh, I know you must be looking forward to Saturday, right? Because you get to do two games for the price of one when the when the Canucks play the Leafs. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually still working through last night's Leafs and Golden Knights game. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling great today. <laughs> so, well, you're, you rallied for us, and I'm, I'm glad you'll get yeah. a little bit of a break. Uh, yeah. on, so, although they, don't, they, they also both play the next date, no, or at least the Canucks play the next day as well. So still, still a no, busy No, the Leafs weekend. play Friday. Yeah, so, okay, okay. Yeah. So there you go. So still busy, yeah. but no yeah. rest for the wicked, nonetheless. No rest no. for the wicked. We'll talk next week, Cam. Yeah, see you guys. There he is, Cam Sharon, of course, doing great work, uh, providing great insight, tracking Canucks games and Leafs games, for that matter. Cam must Chiron. read. Honestly, it's must read stuff. If you want to understand where this team's limitations are, camsharon.com, your one-stop shop. I thought his commentary on the forecheck was really fascinating as well, and he pointed to the Stanika goal, and also I would throw the, uh, the Horvat second goal as well in there, which... Uh, I'm not exactly sure when, how long the forecheck had been going on, but as soon as Connor Garland gets the puck from Travis Hamanick behind the net, boom, it's right out into the slot where Bo Horvat is, and it's a quick goal. And that kind of speaks to Cam's theory of, 
It's not going to be a case of forecheck, retrieve the puck, and then set up and start to dazzle in the offensive zone, right? It needs to be much right. more direct Quick for strike. the Canucks. Get it, and then boom, 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 either pass to the slot or a shot on net and try to kind of create yeah. that chaos in the offensive zone. Well, and I love the fact that, you know, Cam came into the NHL eight years ago or nine years ago with preconceived notions based on his statistical work, his, his enormously impressive body uh, of publicly reviewed statistical work. And he emerges on the other side, having worked with, um, you know, NHL executives and coaches, and he's a pucks in deep yeah. guy. <laughs> pucks in deep, play a hit, set the tone for the rest of the shift, and there you go. Play direct, quick game. strike on the forecheck. Yep, I love it. <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic stuff. Uh, one more segment coming up. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll play Bruce Boudreaux's morning comments ahead of tonight's matchup with the Montreal Canadiens as well. Final segment, Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Three hours from puck drop. Canucks versus the Montreal Canadiens in Montreal. 4.30 start time today. Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah, as always, will have your pregame covered. Uh, I'll be doing intermissions and postgame with Satyar Shah, so... Very, very exciting for all of you. You get to hear more of me tonight if you tune into the postgame show. And, of course, Batch and Randeep will have our play-by-play, as always. Uh, Mike in Ontario text in, Rutherford is an evil genius. He's just playing bad cop, so Bruce can be good cop. Need the players to do well to increase their market value. That is Mike from Ontario. I mean, I think there's probably – there's something to the idea of, like, give the players something to try to, you know – it reminds me of uh, Major League. Right where he reveals the the owner's devious plan to the players, so they like want to prove the owner wrong about how bad they are. That's kind of what the vibe I got. Right, I'm I'm gonna throw everyone. I'm gonna call everyone on the carpet, and if they want to hate me for it, if that makes them play better, then cool. So I, I don't know. I think Mike 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 might be onto something there. I don't think Bruce Boudreaux needs a bad cop to play good cop. <laughs> that's my that's my takeaway. The eternal good cop, Bruce. <laughs> he's the eternal good. He's the best cop. There is no better cop. <laughs> frankly. Uh, that's that's a good his way superpower. It, it really yeah, he's is. Just like such a genuinely good guy that you know you 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 have to work hard for him, or you'd be letting down Bruce Boudreau. And who are you, a monster? Yeah. Who would want to do that? Who would want to no let one. down Bruce Boudreau? Uh, unsigned text comes in with a win today. The Canucks can sneak into a wild card spot. Time to load up for a playoff run. It's true. It's true. Oh, I mean, man. there's there's some other results that can go the other way and prevent that from happening with a win, but. Uh, all of a sudden, Drance, the playoffs back on the menu. They're they're knocking on the door. Uh, before we start talking about that, uh, this is this is going to happen though. Like they, yeah, we've at no point have we ever said that the Canucks were like dead in the water, right? We knew that this team was better than they looked in the first seven games. We knew that, and they've shown it now. Uh, they're also not as good as they've looked in the last seven, right? Now they've got one more sort of cupcakey opponent, and then a really tough stretch, right? We're going to know a lot about the Canucks, not not at the end of this stretch even, not at the end of this road trip, like early December. And then we can start talking about exactly what they are, right? Then we can start talking about whether it's worth, hey, look, this is a team that's actually playing really well. It's worth seeing how this plays out, or this team is who we thought they were. And we'll know a lot. Like, we'll know a lot. It's like three weeks out. We just got to be a little bit patient, and we'll have some definitive sense 
of exactly the true talent level of this team. Just got to uh, fill airtime for three more weeks before we can have those conversations. Speaking, no, but I mean, we no, can no, talk about how it's trending in the meantime, <laughs> yeah, you know? Joking, uh, speaking of Bruce Boudreaux, he spoke to the media ahead of tonight's game in Montreal. Here's what Boudreaux had to say. With all the talk around the team, you guys are 4-1-1 one, one in your last six, and you were talking about trying to get some traction. Do you feel like you guys can get some forward momentum here? Well, I mean, it's uh, every game is a different day, and every team is trying to win. It's a pretty, um, pretty even league right now. So, I mean, we have to uh, we have to play more consistent than we did last night for sure if we want to want to be successful again. But I mean, uh, there's always that opportunity. There was always that thought that okay, let's just get one more, and then you get a day off and and you get to rest. So we're looking forward to playing tonight. The first twelve. 13 minutes of the third period last night, I think, is the identity you want this team to play with. Does it start with the, the four-check in your mind? Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, we just went over um, some film about four-checking and, and the goods uh, and the bads of it. And uh, uh, But, I mean, it's it's been the constant of when we're successful of one of the things that we're doing is we're four-checking really well. And I didn't think in the first two periods we had any pressure whatsoever on Ottawa on the third period we did have more and consequently we got opportunities and and we were lucky enough to put them in Demko tonight yep Bruce yeah you know you're coming against a, a team tonight with Montreal that went all the way to shootout last night do you think your offensive flair right now will hold well against Montreal I don't know I mean uh, they won I mean you went on the road you're a little pumped up especially when you're coming home and uh uh, they're playing well. I mean, uh, uh, they want to get above 500. You know, I mean, uh, uh, so and it's a tough building to play in, and as I've known for a lot of years. And so it's uh, they'll definitely have the crowd on their side. So it'll be, it should be a good game between two teams that want to prove to to the league that we're better than people say we are. With an offense that has so much success right now and a defense who's obviously struggling, how do you find the balance without, like, improving defense without uh, affecting offense? Well, I mean, uh, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world. But I mean, uh, listen, every coach wants to be a great defensive coach, and that's our goal. Uh, the offense is usually taken care of by the 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 athlete's ability to do that, and you don't have to tell them a lot of things. But I mean, defense is a five, is a six-man game, and you just got to get committed. And I've always believed that good defense leads to good offense. So it's if you have good defense, you're going to get in, you're going to get opportunities to score. So uh, we'd certainly like to do better defensively than we've been doing. But I, I, you know, other than the 40 shots last night, I thought we've been in recent games have been doing pretty good in. in Given up fewer chances than the other team. I know it's not an all-star in your team, but adding Aiden Bear on the on the squad, how much of an impact does it have to maybe stabilize things a little? Well, it's an NHL defenseman. Like I mean, people forget in the first eight games we had four call-ups from uh, from Abbotsford every night in the lineup. I mean, we've gone through 11 defensemen already in this short year, so it's uh, uh, it's nice to to start getting some guys in that. You know, have been in the league and know know how to play. You were talking. Sorry, I don't want to monopolize this, but you were talking about commitment. Do you feel there's a lack of maybe defensive commitment in your forward group? No, I I, I think there's. I don't think that. I think we all want to be good defensively. Sometimes there's a lot of new guys, and a lot of them uh, uh, aren't 
foreign to English language. So it takes a little bit while longer for them to understand the whole concept of what we're doing. And it's not only them, but I mean, uh, sometimes when you're not winning, the other thing is, is everybody wants to do everybody else's jobs instead of just doing their own job. And uh, they want to win so bad that they want to help out here, they want to help out there. And, and in the end, they're not really helping anything. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau. Speaking of being uh, the good cop, Bruce Boudreau, answer the final answer there, right? Gets asked, do your forwards lack commitment to playing defense? He says, no, not at all. In fact, you know, some of the new guys, they're trying to do too much. They're trying to help out too much. And it ends up being counterproductive. It reminds me of, you know, in a job interview, right? They ask you, what's your biggest weakness? And it's like, well, I'm a perfectionist. I push myself too hard. <laughs> like, wait, that's not, that's not really a weakness. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm too much of a team player. Yeah, exactly. I need to, yeah, I put others' sure. needs in front of mine consistently. <laughs> I, I, I'm too intel- intelligent, and it alienates people. Yeah, classic. Your big problem. classic yes. answers. Yeah. So there you <laughs> no, go. I, 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 sorry, I thought I we know. were just I'm riffing. joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I saw an, I saw an opening, and I had to take it there, Dresser. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so I'm fading. The idea of the Canucks as, as this elite offensive team. That's sort of the new thing, I think. You look at their goals for numbers, and they're scoring a ton. But I think there's a fair bit of, um, you know, it's partly finishing talent, right? This team has so many good one-shot goal scorers that I expect them to shoot an elevated percentage overall, right? Like, I do expect them to shoot an elevated percentage, but... Overall, the Canucks are shooting 12%, right? So the goaltending goaltenders that they're facing are stopping 880 on, um, on shots that the Canucks are taking overall this season. And when you look at sort of the underlying offensive profile, I mean, they're well below average in terms of the rate at which they're uh, generating expected goals for, right? They're in the 20s, basically. Uh, same thing goes for uh, scoring chances for. Uh, in terms of the rates at which they are actually producing, like, threatening hockey against their opposition, uh, it's out of line with their actual goal results. Uh, and this team has scored a lot. I mean, from a goal-scoring perspective, only six teams are manufacturing goals at a higher rate. And yet, the underlying process there suggests this suggests that this is a team far closer to league average offensively than they are in the top ten. Uh, the good news is is that I also think their defensive results are far closer to league average than they are to uh, where this team is overall, right? It, it, it actually, I think this Canucks team's, you know, not nearly as permissive. Like, they're, they're allowing the third most goals in terms of rates, right? The Only the Blue Jackets and the Anaheim Ducks are getting scored on at a higher rate than the Canucks all situations to this point this season. And I think that's underrating uh, how good you know, good Vancouver is defensively. So one thing I would suggest to you, like I see that Vegas, for example, uh, our good friends at play now sports is beginning to set Canucks overs really high, like really high seven, six and a half. Right. Um, just in the, in the general course of things, it's six and a half today against a Montreal Canadian side. Um, you know, that in terms of the rate that they're manufacturing goals, you know, they're, they're, um, far closer to the league bottom. In fact, they're sixth bottom from the league. So they're 26th out of 32. 
those unders are a play to watch for. I'm not suggesting, you know, you, you do so. And if you do, use your game sense, uh-huh. right? <laughs> um, but the unders are something that I'd be looking at overall with the Canucks because I, I think their offensive production overrates how di- how dynamic they are offensively. I think the goals that they're permitting are outside the range of the sorts of chances that they're actually surrendering most of the time. Not last night, but most of the time. And so I, I think this team's going to play a, a lot more low-scoring games, a lot more 2-1, a lot more 3-1, a lot more 3-2 games going forward here. I, I just don't see... Horvat and Miller sustaining 25% shooting clips. I don't see the team sustaining a 13% shooting clip. Like those numbers are going to come back to earth. When they do, I expect the Canucks to be in a lot more of those like classic tight checking games. Even if this is more of a 4-3 league than a 3-2 league these days, I do think that we're going to see some lower event Canucks contests going forward. The other thing, uh, you know, so just backing those, those numbers up a little bit and Early in the season, they were really, really struggling to generate five-on-five. I think it's improved a little bit, but still, just looking at natural stat trick, five-on-five scoring chances per 60, Canucks 25th uh, in the league, right? So bottom yep. bottom quarter of the league in that regard. The, the bottom quartile of the bottom quartile? <laughs> yes. Did you see that Colts quote? I was unbelievable. I was like, "Oh my god, I don't even sound like that." No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. You don't want to you don't want to sound less accessible than me, man. <laughs> Get it together. And in terms of scoring chances against, they're 17th in the league. So, right right around league average right now. I think it's just that so many of the breakdowns look so glaring that it probably inflates our perception of how bad the defensive well, issues and- are, right? And so many of the breakdowns result in goals against. Like, we talked about this with the Miller giveaway, right? That was a bad giveaway, but it doesn't matter, really. People barely even remember it because the Ottawa Senators didn't score on it. So it gets sort of banked differently. You don't have the same emotional reaction when watching it. You know, you think about a giveaway when you see it in real time and then it doesn't result in a goal against. You're like, oh, they got away with one. And then you're quickly on to the whatever else is happening on mm-hmm. the ice. Mm-hmm. When it results in a goal, you're like, oh. Brutal. How that, could they do that? Uh, you know, it just, it, it resonates differently emotionally and that impacts how, you know, collective memory wise, we all perceive it and discuss it the next day. And so inevitably, part of its results when the Canucks are having breakdowns right now, so often, uh, they're ending up in the back of their net. And Demko's going to make more saves going forward. Even Spencer Martin's going to make more saves going forward. Like, Vancouver's not going to end the year in the bottom five in NHL save percentage. They have too much goaltending talent for that. Their goaltenders are too well drilled. Uh, they're going to, you know, they might they might be below average, but if they are, they're going to be within a stone's throw of average, right? The, the, these, this team's going to get better goaltending, and when that happens, those breakdowns, they still might be there, but they're not going to result in goals against as frequently, just as when the Canucks get good chances, they're not all going to find the back of the net the way they seemingly have to this point in the season. Looking at some of the other odds on uh, playnow.com for the game tonight, Canucks minus 165 on the money line, Canadians plus 140. So, so that's that's trending toward the Canucks. They were they were 130 when it opened. Uh, they went up to 140 minus 140 uh, when I checked it maybe a half hour before we went on air. So line is moving pretty dramatically to the Canucks. Might close at something like minus 180. That's uh, and that's the most significant that they've been favored uh, by for as 
that I can remember for a little while. They were they were one sixty against the Flyers. It closed at one sixty against the Flyers on October fifteenth, and they closed at one sixty eight minus one sixty eight on October twenty second when they hosted the Buffalo Sabers. Um, <laughs> oh, and they and sorry and sorry. You know what? They closed at one, minus one seventy seven. So that's the current high water mark. That was where they closed against the Anaheim Ducks when they hosted right. them for Kevin Bx tonight. Right. So those are those are the sort of the times where they've been uh, favored by less than 150 and and what's interesting is to this point too the Canucks haven't been dogs um you know at at a at a super high clip either 164 they were 164 dogs against the Penguins they were 162 dogs on opening night against the Edmonton Oilers so for the most part Vegas Vegas has the Canucks favored in 7 of 14 right and when they are underdogs they're not you know, their opponents, not plus 200, not plus 300, right? They are not, it's not pickums, but they're relatively modest favorites and they're relatively modest dogs. And the odds have been basically split half the time. They're underdogs, half the time they're favored. Um, that tells you that Vegas really does see this as an average team, right? And that's a good sign. If you're a Canucks fan who's hopeful that the results are going to be better going forward, because to this point, the Canucks have not performed like an average team, right? They've been a well below average team. In fact, they've spent most of the season in the bottom five in the NHL in point percentage. And yet Vegas continues to tell us with how they're setting these lines. And, and of course, this isn't a pure objective metric, right? There is some incentive to get action on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Canucks are something of a public team, but... Nonetheless, the overall action when it's this dramatic a trend over 14 games, uh, you know, it does tell us Vegas thinks this of the Canucks. They think they're a high octane offensive team, a take that I'd fade and that I think you can find value betting against, who is roughly league average. Roughly league average, you know what a roughly league average team does? They have a chance at the playoffs. Um, Canucks can keep sort of building that case to be in that mix tonight in Montreal the other one I would look at uh, I always like to check out the anytime goal scorers on playnow.com will not surprise you uh, Bo Horvat well he has the best at plus 120 but right there with him at plus 120 as well Elias Patterson that's higher or better odds than anybody uh, for the Habs Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki are both at plus 150 and look man I don't know I realize it's like the definition of the gambler's fallacy right ride the hot hand Bo Horvat he keeps scoring so take him to as the anytime goal scorer but I'm gonna say it like that's what I, that's where I would lean, and especially how key he is on the power play and the fact that they're always looking to set up that goal. I don't know. I like I like Bohorvat at plus one twenty. It's simple. It's uh, it's as I said, it's playing right into the gambler's fallacy. But the way he's playing right now and how key he is to this offense, uh, I feel pretty good about it. It's um, yeah. I mean, I like to I like to seek out better value and regression. Personally, <laughs> that's that's my overall approach. Um, but you know, you're right. I, at the end of the day, Bo Horvat's on such a tear; it's hard to bet against him, right? I mean, no one's made a lick of money betting against Bo Horvat. Um, you know, under 0.5 points <laughs> to this point <laughs> in the season, guy is just absolutely on fuego. In terms of the value guy, maybe the guy who's uh, who's due a bounce or two, um, Tanner Pearson. Tanner, I don't mind Tanner Pearson. He's net front power player two, um, and I don't mind uh, I don't mind Pedersen. You know, Pedersen. I think we've seen him shoot a little bit less uh, over the last little bit, which 
I, I guess maybe is a little bit concerning, but um, you know, his shooting clips 14, five, he's like alone among Canucks goal scorers. Like, look, I mean, I mean, almost across the board Canucks players here are carrying pretty elevated shooting percentages, uh, you know, almost to a man. Like the only exceptions really are Brock Besser and Elias Pettersson. Cause you look down the list and it's like 26% for Miller, 25 plus percent for Bo Horvat, 20 plus percent for both Ilya Mikheyev and Andre Kuzmenko. Mm -hmm. So when I, and, and I mean, those four players account for 30 of Vancouver's goals. <laughs> so when I talk about this team, maybe being an, uh, uh, an overall, like as an offensive outfit, right. To hear Bruce Boudreaux answer questions like, do you need to get better at defense at the expense of your offense? Right. The Canucks aren't the Canucks actually need to do more to generate if they're going to continue to score like this. Um, when four of your most important forwards are all carrying shooting percentage, personal shooting clips over 20 percent, uh, you know that there may be some rainy days ahead. Uh, the other one I would look at, and I know, as you said, he has the elevated shooting percentage, but he's also been really, really good net front on the power play. Andre Kuzmenko, plus 250 anytime goal scorer, uh, is interesting to me as well. I don't know... I don't know why Andre Kuzmenko would have longer odds than Ilya Mikheyev as an anytime goal scorer, so I don't mind that one at all at plus 250 for Andre Kuzmenko. That's going to do it for Canucks Talk today. Again, 4.30 is puck drop for the Montreal Canadiens. Hear it all right here on Sportsnet 650. Batch and Randeep with the call. Satin Reach with the pregame show. And then myself and Satyar Shah, intermission and postgame coverage. We will be back with more Canucks Talk tomorrow on Sportsnet 650.